Remember that we're in the middle of one of the most severe post-pandemic staffing shortages we've ever seen, and October 6th is coming soon, so that's a real challenge. Hi, I'm Marianne Bohr with Hims. In this episode, we are sitting down with Dr. Yan Chow, Global Healthcare Leader at Automation Anywhere. Today, we'll be talking about automation approaches to the information blocking rule. Before we start, I'd like to say thank you to Automation Anywhere for sponsoring this podcast. Dr. Chow, thanks for joining us today. Could you tell us what the information blocking rule is? Thanks, Marianne. I'm very glad to be here. The information blocking rule is part of the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed by Congress in December 2016. Basically, it says that patients or their authorized delegates must be able to electronically access all of their electronic health information, or what we call EHI, securely and at no cost. EHI includes both structured and unstructured data, like doctor's notes, nurse's notes, even billing information, which sometimes goes beyond the EHR, everything that impacted the care of the patient. The information blocking rule is also intended to enable uh, an ecosystem of new applications that provide consumers with more choices. The Office of the National Coordinator, or ONC, has specified the way that that data must be delivered to patients is to use the uh, International HL7 FHIR API, FHIR is spelled F-H-I-R, which is a modern international open standard. And in terms of who has to comply with this rule, the list includes healthcare providers, all healthcare providers, developers of certified health IT like Epic and Cerner, and health information exchanges and networks. So upon request from the patient, they must deliver to them or to their authorized representative all EHI, and the rule prohibits what they call um, what they call unnecessary delays. So if a provider is using an EHR that's been certified by the ONC, and that comes from the High Tech Act from a couple of years ago, then that EHR actually should be able to do this to fulfill this need. So the ONC says, therefore, it should be free for the patient. The only exceptions or information the provider cannot share or would not, would not share are mental health notes and pre-litigation notes. So that's the summary of the information blocking rule. I see. Now, where did this rule come from? Yeah, the backstory is pretty interesting. The federal government has tried for decades to unlock data silos to address uh, broad concerns about the cost quality and value of medical care. So it all started with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, in 1996. HIPAA has become a a sort of synonymous with protecting patient privacy, but that the P, you know, the middle letter in HIPAA stands for portability or the ability for medical records to be portable. The idea was a patient should be able to go to their doctor, request their records, and have it be sent to them or to another doctor in a timely manner. At the time, most records were on paper. So to increase portability, HIPAA also encouraged electronic health records or EHRs and set up rules around privacy and security. But things uh, sort of went along very slowly. So Congress took the next step. The High Tech Act of 2009 was a huge, uh, many physicians remember that, it was a huge carrot and stick to aggressively move healthcare organizations to EHRs. The results were impressive because at that time, I think there was 15% adoption of EHRs across the nation. Today, it's over 95%. But it still wasn't enough. In 2017, just a few years ago, the Office of the National Coordinator, or ONC, did a study, a reality check, 
and how the process of getting one's medical records actually works. So they interviewed patients, providers, administrators. What was really disappointing was that even in the age of EHRs, the process is still fragmented, still painful for both patient and provider. Lots of hurdles, lots of manual back and forth exchanges, paper forms, delays, not seamless. So then the Congress took the next step, which was the 21st Century Cures Act in December 2016, aiming to reduce these barriers to access. So the information blocking rule was just part of that, but the implementation of it was uh, delayed by COVID-19. However, the final deadline has not been set as October 6th, which is less than 100 days away. So very, very, uh, really coming down to the deadline. Wow, yeah. Now, can you explain to us a little bit about why the information blocking rule is so important? Yeah, it's been um, it's been a, a sore point for Congress and for the American public for a long time. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why this rule is really important and really going to be very beneficial for patients. First is that medical records have a lot of can potentially have a lot of errors. It's important that the patient can verify the accuracy of their records. Uh, you can imagine the dire consequences of a doctor making a decision based on wrong information. And this is not infrequent. Sometimes information is captured or misunderstood in the record that the patient uh, would like to correct. The second is that Congress would like patients and patients would like patients to have more control and better coordinate their health care among several parties. And this is actually aligning well with the rise of healthcare consumerism, that one of the trends I've been following. It means that patients can get a second opinion much more easily, which was extremely difficult in the past due to the blocked access to medical records. And uh, third, there should be fewer redundant or repeat tests and procedures, which would reduce harm to patients, decrease costs for insurers, and maybe put a dent in the national uh, phenomenon of rising healthcare costs. So some important reasons and uh, something that uh, the 21st Century Cures Act really try, tries to address. I see. Now, um, what does this rule require healthcare organizations to do? So once a healthcare organization receives an, a request for EHI from a patient after October 6, it must have a mechanism in place to respond quickly, gathering all the required EHR both from the EH. All, all the EHI, both from the EHR and other systems, package that data and deliver it to the patient electronically using the HL7 FHIR format and do it within a few days. So that is the uh, that is a requirement. Okay, now what are some of the challenges to meeting this requirement for healthcare organizations? The, I think that's a good question. The challenges are actually pretty significant. And I would say most healthcare organizations are not ready. So I think it would be useful to look at how healthcare organizations have historically responded to such regulatory mandates. What they usually do is they study the requirements of the rule, or in this case, they would study the requirements of the information blocking rule, which is a first step. And this may involve a lot of different departments, including legal, and involves defining in their unique situation what EHI represents. Then they would develop a plan to comply with the requirements. And then the next step is usually they will assign or hire new staff to perform the tasks required by the plan, which involves collecting a large set of data from the EHR, billing systems, pharmacy systems, every other source of EHI, 
then these folks would have to bring all this stuff together, convert them into a common HL7 fire format, package it, make it available securely to the patient, all within, I assume, a few days. So remember that we're in the middle of one of the most severe post-pandemic staffing shortages we've ever seen, and October 6th is coming soon, so that's a real challenge. Healthcare providers are only just starting to make plans in, in meeting with many of them. Uh, that's what the situation is. Some EHR, EHR vendors are setting up internal mechanisms to comply with their part of the information blocking rule. But as I mentioned, EHI goes beyond the EHR and constructing the final package to satisfy the rule will require quite a bit of work. So here's an example. Suppose you're a health system that takes care of a million patients. October 6th rolls around and 100 patients want their EHI under the rule. In a worst case scenario, that's a $100 million penalty if you don't comply. Wow, that really kind of dovetails in my next question, which was, what are the consequences if healthcare organizations can't comply? One of the things that's interesting about information blocking rule is this is a probably one of the few times I've, I've seen a signaling by the government that is quite serious. As I mentioned, each information blocking violation will result in a fine of up to a million dollars, which is amazing. So uh, over 300 complaints have already been submitted on the government reporting portal. So along with a heavy fine, uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, will also publicly report on a wall of shame information blocking providers and providers who have not published a secure HL7 FHIR API endpoint to permit external data access, either for the patient or for, or for an app that the patient is using or for a provider the patient is switching to. So this incentive is a little bit like the public reporting of HEDIS quality scores in terms of public exposure and stuff, but the the level of the fine is, is uh, I think, is pretty unprecedented. Yes, it certainly sounds that way. Dr. Chow, um, what role can automation play in this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think where we play a role is at this point, after a healthcare organization defines and establishes their sort of their compliance process under the information blocking rule, that's when uh, automation can be helpful. When you think about the kinds of tasks that must be performed, such as you know, going to many different information systems, logging in, fetching certain data, aggregating, converting that data into the right format, packaging it, packaging it or sending and or making available that package to the patient or requester, as well as monitoring the process, the time taken, the potential delays and bottlenecks. Many, many of these steps are manual, repetitive, labor intensive and prone to error. That's where intelligent automation can really help, depending on the organization. Processes could be partly or fully automated so that the patient's request can be fulfilled within the time frame required by the rule. Instead of every patient request triggering a team of people to do the same thing every time, imagine in some cases just clicking a single button to launch a set of uh, software robots to do the same thing, maybe under human supervision. It would be much faster, more accurate, and can even generate audit logs in case regulators ever wanted to verify compliance. In healthcare, uh, we found that automation is often not just a solution, but a performance multiplier. And what's really exciting with this movement towards medical data sharing is, as intended by Congress, 
I think it will open up the market and release a pent-up demand for building new data-driven applications created by the sharing of data. And this could include things like coordinating care between different health systems, one of the original reasons for HIPAA, big data analytics and AI, personalized medicine based on genetic and phenotypic markers, clinical trial recruiting, public health, the early detection of pandemics, and finally, uh, analyzing social determinants of health to improve real-world therapy results. So I think, in summary, that there are many exciting things in store for healthcare and for patients. It's just that healthcare changes very slowly, as you know. Right. Well, Dr. Chow, thank you so much for joining us today and for your insights. And a special thanks to Automation Anywhere for sponsoring this podcast. Have a fantastic rest of your day.